You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er fam, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Paul Thomas. Paul is a partner at leading public affairs firm, the Parkside Group. In his current role, he develops and executes multifaceted government relations efforts for his clients by building on skills he developed over many years as a senior aide to several high-ranking elected officials, including then-Attorney General Andrew Cuomo. In our chat, we discussed how Paul's journey took him from New York City public housing to some of the most elite political circles in the state of New York, and how he used his passion for fitness as a means to network and connect others. So as always, take a listen and please enjoy. Paul, welcome to the December 26th podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Thanks for being here. You're yeah, another one. We've, we've had like people coming with really great energy today. Yeah, it's so. a beautiful Saturday. There's no reason to be upset exactly. or angry. The trains were running smoothly. <laughs> so. That alone, in New York, you got to find gratitude if the trains True. are running the way they're yeah, the supposed to. The A train to. was smooth. The M train was smooth. <laughs> Nobody was crazy on the train. It was a good time coming in. It's a good day. Yes. Well, I'm excited to talk to you, especially because we had here. to reschedule this one. So I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, but listen. And everything works out as it yes. should because we already told you we, exactly. had, we had some scheduling exactly. drama that day. Um, so it worked out. All good. Things unfold as, they, yep. as they're supposed to. Yep. So let's jump into it. Absolutely. Tell me, who is Paul Thomas? Paul Thomas, a uh, humble servant. Um, I truly believe it's my calling to be a service to humanity. Um, I consider myself a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I always say, if you take the simplest lesson of Jesus Christ and look at his stories throughout, he was helping people. And I feel it's my calling to bring people together in my profession and to help people on a day-to-day basis, however I can. And that sometimes being bigger and trying to be a blessing to them, even though they may not be the best person in the world or mm-hmm. treating you uh, with where you think you should be treated, but to try to be above that and to continue to serve people. Awesome. So in the day and age in which we live, Mm -hmm. a lot of people use those words, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that they walk that out, Mm -hmm. right? And because so many people are seeking power and influence and prestige, that being a humble servant in word is cool, but like indeed is a different story. So how have you worked to really weave that, that focus into your professional and personal choices? So I'm a partner at the Parkside Group, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a public affairs lobbying firm in New York State. Uh, We have clients both before New York State and New York City. And day to day is truly is about helping people. Mm -hmm. If it's not my clients and trying to help them navigate government, it's helping individuals who are seeking jobs for me in my career. The best thing that I can do to help someone is help them get a job. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no greater fulfillment that I have in my career and what I do on a daily basis or throughout uh, the years I've been in politics here in New York is to give somebody else an opportunity and opening doors. I really feel that's important. I have had great mentors in my career, and it would be beyond selfish of me not to open those same doors that were open to me and give those opportunities to individuals who come from my community, not to give them that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So you talked about, you mentioned coming from your community. Tell me about where you grew up. I grew up in the South Bronx. Oh, wait a okay. minute now. South Bronx, not so. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) bro. (laughs) 
Not the lower Bronx or whatever catchy no. new phrase they want to name. You grew up in the South Bronx, South, South, Bronx, South, Bronx. South, South Bronx. South, South Bronx. <laughs> uh, Merrill's Houses, so mm -hmm. Merrill's Projects, NYCHA Housing. And I grew up in a single-parent home, a uh, household of my mother, my oldest sister who lives in Atlanta now, and myself, and grew up, you know, in the late 80s and 90s during the crack era uh, to my mom to raise two kids in that environment and they come out to be functional adults mm -hmm. and contributors to society, uh, it's a blessing. Mm -hmm. So again, grew up in South Bronx during that era, went to Lehman High School, uh, went to Paul Robeson uh, Junior High School and then on to SUNY Stony Brook. Uh, that's, where, that's where I was raised and I was exposed to you know, the harsh re realities of life, especially for that time. But I won't change it for the world. It shaped me in a way where every day I truly appreciate what I do uh, for a living. I, I take it seriously about my calling, again, to help people and to create opportunities because I've seen families decimated by crack. Mm -hmm. I have seen families decimated by urban violence. So to be in a space where I could help right that ship is a blessing. So tell me how someone from the New York City Housing Authority, you know, from the projects in the South Bronx, yep. ends up working in New York City government. What, what, what was that journey like? Take me back to like the day where you said, I'm going to college. Uh-huh. And I'm going to figure out what my career path is going to be. So I kind of give you the timeline of things that I wanted to be when I was, mm -hmm. you know, as a kid growing up. Like, oh, I want to be this. I want to be that. It started out as a preacher. Really? Yeah. Started out as a preacher. Then the movie Top Gun came out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I want to be a naval pilot. <laughs> And then I discovered that you had to have 20-20 eyesight. So I was like, eh, no. Nope. Uh, then I wanted to be a social studies teacher uh, from junior high school through high school. Um, I always did well in social studies. I don't know what they're calling it these days, mm -hmm. but social studies, you know, I took to and I always excelled. Um, talking about and learning government and learning world history. Uh, when I got to college, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. And then one day at school in Stony, at Stony Brook, um, where I played football, uh, my guidance counselor, athletic uh, guidance counselor came and he's like, Paul, you got two options. You can either continue, because at the time my major was psychology, but my minor was political science. Mm -hmm. He said, if you do continue with psychology, you're going to be here maybe a year more than you should be. If you do political science, you're on track, all's good. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take political <laughs> that science. That political science is looking a lot better and more attractive now. So I uh, had a, a professor, I forget her name, but she put me in contact with one of my mentors and one of my dear friends, a gentleman by the name of Patrick Jenkins. And Patrick hooked me up with an internship uh, for Carl McCall, who was running for governor at the time. Mm -hmm. And that's how I started my career in politics. And once you entered the career as an intern, did, did the floodgates really open up? Did you have that moment where it's like, this is what I was meant to do? Or was that more of a, a gradual progression? So I come from a cop family. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother's from Panama. My dad's from Grenada. But my mother's father was a cop in Panama. Okay. Um, my mother, you know, came here when she was six. And she worked for the police department as a police administrative assistant. Uh, my cousin was a narcotics detective. Mm. Uh, my sister, she may not appreciate that I'm saying this on camera, uh, but she also took the test to become a police officer. Uh, but things didn't work out. <laughs> oh, she's going to get you. <laughs> Background checks. <laughs> uh, she's going to get you. She's going to get you. Uh, but no. Uh, but 
I was always surrounded by cops in my family. Mm -hmm. And coming out of high school and even into college, you know, I was always aspired to be my cousin, Tyron Pope, to be a cop. I wanted to be like my bigger cousin and so much. So I'm kind of divert and tell you this cool story. So Ty at the time was in his mid-20s. And I was about 15, 16, 17 years old. On Saturday night, instead of hanging out with his friends and going to clubs like Bentley's at the time. Yeah, you remember Bentley's? <laughs> instead of going to Bentley's, he took Saturday nights and took his 16-year-old cousin and taught him how to play chess. Wow. Yeah, so when you talk about pouring in and you talk about mentoring and you talk about uplifting and you talk about being a blessing, like in that moment to have a black man I didn't grow up with my father. Mm -hmm. uh, a black man, take the time, a young black man, take the time to spend time with his cousin, his younger cousin, uh, his younger cousin who was also a black man, to say, this is how you move in life. That was a powerful moment. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a powerful time for me, and it's something that I didn't appreciate until... I was a man. Right. And I was able to, I was um, for work a couple of years ago, I was in Russia, Moscow, Russia, in St. Petersburg. And it was my one mission to buy a chess set from Russia. Mm -hmm. And while I was buying my chess set, I noticed another chess set and I was able to get that from my cousin. And I'm not the most emotional person in the world, but at that point, uh, I was filled up with emotion because I remember my cousin taking that time that he could have been doing other things on a Saturday night as a young black man with a good job. Mm -hmm. And he took that time to pour into me. So that was a very formative time in my life. Yeah. And I don't know if, if you've had this moment as an adult, but when I think about everything that I have to do, uh -huh. um, and that's just not your professional job, yeah. staying in shape, making sure you get enough rest, yeah. helping you know people with these projects and all this other stuff. And then the people that I mentor and what it takes to be committed to that, yep. right? And making sure you show up for them when you say that you're going to, yep. it is a sacrifice. So it often, it takes me back to the mentors that I had yep. who did it for me for years. Mm -hmm. And it almost, it, in, it ignites like a different level of reverence mm -hmm. when you see it like now from an adult's perspective, what they really had to give up. Yep. Even if it's just their own downtime mm -hmm. to blow off steam, to really invest and pay it forward in that way. It's yeah. a really powerful thing when you, when you think about it. It is. So before we move further into like your career journey, we got to go back to the preacher thing. You wanted to be a preacher. How did that come about? I don't know. I tell you the truth, it was just like, you know, my family, my mom is uh, Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we did church. Um, but again, I was always had the ability to bring people together. And I always had the ability to just say, to bring a calmness mm -hmm. to a situation. And from that, it was like, I want to preach to people, Mom. And then, again, after Top Gun came out, that quickly went away. <laughs> you made the shift. Okay. <laughs> I, made the shift I, I just quick. had to know how that, that came about. Um, okay, so you're, you're in this internship. Yep. Um, you know, first first professional experience, yep. first political experience yep. as well. What was that like for you as a young black man? Uh, it was awesome. Um, people talk about government, and sometimes people don't understand how government, especially state and municipal government, impact their lives every day to how much you're going to pay for the train, how much you're going to pay from the toll because you live in Jersey, mm -hmm. right? You know, how much you're going to pay in college tuition. 
you know, what type of affordable housing opportunities you may have in your community. Government impacts your life in every way. And at that time, working on that campaign from a call, it was a short stint because I got an opportunity to manage the campaign for Kevin Parker. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's now a state senator out of Flatbush, uh, one of the most powerful people uh, in Albany and is a dear friend. I was able to to, uh, manage his campaign and we won. And again, to start my career in Brooklyn and be on the ground and see how local government impacts the day-to-day lives of individuals was powerful for me. And it was something that I wanted to do because, again, and my belief system and shaping my early parts of my career was about helping people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we keep it, like, all the way real on yep. this show, right? And one of the things I think when people think about Black people working in politics, mm-hmm. you know, behind the scenes or what have you, there's often a vision in their mind of, like, what they think that person should look like. Yeah. Um. And I think sometimes people's natural inclination is to think the people who look like Barack Obama, right? Mm-hmm. And who kind of fit in this acceptable token role, you know, of of being that kind of mm-hmm. African-American. You are not only coming from the South Bronx, you know, from the projects. You are what some could consider an intimidating Black man just by your mere presence in terms of former football player, you know, et cetera. I'm a teddy bear. But I can see <laughs> tell like by talking to you that you have this really calm spirit but you you know what I mean yeah. that that yeah. need your yeah. first impression mm-hmm. did you ever experience that I'm thinking mm-hmm. I'm thinking I want to answer that question honestly yes and no not from uh, intimidation piece of oh black men mm-hmm. I'm scared of you but you had to prove yourself more than some of your counterparts kind of mm-hmm. because you didn't come from a politically connected family. Mm-hmm. You didn't get in the door because some donor say made a call, right? Or you didn't have a, a political figure who vouched for you. Whereas sometimes people start their career that way. Uh, for me, I had a mentor. I had a mentor again, Pat Jenkins, mm-hmm. uh, who at the time. Uh, as an influential Democratic operative in the city that opened doors for me. But where you come from sometimes in politics and how you get to that point, you have to prove yourself more than some of your counterparts because, or work harder because you don't have that person vouching for you mm-hmm. who may crack the door versus open up the door without you really working your way to get to the door. Got it. So you got that first step in the door and in your internship. Mm-hmm. What did you see for yourself after having that experience in terms of your professional journey? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, at that time, even though I was falling, falling in love with politics and the idea of working in government, I still kind of hold on to wanting to be a cop. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you know, I worked on uh, Senator Parker's campaign and, you know, took the opportunity to work with them. It gave me an opportunity to do what I love to do, which is, again, to continue to help people. And what's funny, as I went from working for Kevin Parker in 03 to then be the chief of staff to now Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, uh, then did a quick stint at the city council. I had an opportunity to work for the attorney general, Andrew Cuomo, who's now governor. Uh, so, you know, I joke with my family all the time. It came full circle. Right. I actually did work, work for a law enforcement agency and at the attorney general's office. So it came full circle. And so what was that like? Like moving through, that is really the progression that people mm-hmm. want to work in politics. They want to see that happen, right? They they, they want to have that full circle moment. Mm-hmm. 
for you, did you have, did you ever have that, that period where you're like, this is what I'm meant to be doing? Like this, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be um, and it can only go up from here? Or was it a little bit more disjointed? Um, so when I worked for Senator Parker, I was a special assistant. When I, at the time when I was working for Speaker Hasty, I was his chief of staff uh, when he was a rank and file member. Mm-hmm. And when I did the stint at the council, it was an opportunity to learn the different aspects of different branches of government. When I worked for the attorney general, I was exposed to opportunities of networking with individuals throughout the state. So if you look at my career, it was a progression of junior staffer. Then I was able to run an office for an elected official. Then I was able to learn a different branch of government, city government versus state government. I was working in the state legislature. Then I was able to work for the executive branch, which is the attorney general's office. So along that line, I was able to learn different parts of government and how different parts all work together to produce a product to help people and improve the lives of New Yorkers. So working in those roles and also having come from the South Bronx, Mm -hmm. not just the South Bronx, but like growing up in the project and seeing how crack literally decimated communities. Yes, families. Right. So having seen that firsthand and then going into politics, which we all know can be very dirty. Yeah. um, And the little guy's needs are not always top of mind. Right. How do you maintain your integrity in those types of environments? So I've been fortunate to work with people with high integrity. (laughs) I've been fortunate to work with individuals who care about the community. Uh, In my experience, I have never seen the dark side of politics. Mm-hmm. I've been able to work with just outstanding public servants that truly care about the community. And when you talk about growing up through that period and going through the crack era, I saw how it decimated families. Mm-hmm. It makes you appreciate and make you take your job seriously that the constituents that you represent, whether you're working in a district office or you're working for the attorney general, that these are not faceless people. These are individuals that you grew up with. These are individuals that you know their struggle. These are individuals that are trying to make a way but don't know how to make a way. And you are in a position to make a way, to help them make a way, to help them see that path that they may not see for themselves to say, if you do X, if you do Y, you can improve your life. Mm -hmm. And... In my various roles throughout my career and in my current role um, as a partner at the Parkside Group, we get to work with individuals, we get to work with nonprofit organizations, we get to work with corporations that sometimes I like to say are doing God's work, that are trying to make a path for people who are underserved. So tell me how you got to the Parkside Group after hitting, you know, these various branches mm-hmm. of government and now working at this firm. How did that happen? So they recruited me. Really? Uh, it was in August 2011. Uh, one of the founders, uh, part founder, co-founders, uh, Evan Stavisky, gave me a call. And he said, Paul, we have your resume. We uh, know a couple of folks that know you throughout the business. Uh, we would love to have a conversation with you about coming on board to the Parkside Group. And at that time, to be honest, I didn't know much about the lobbying world. I said, lobbying firm? I'm like, uh, can I get back to you? So the first person I called that was Pat Jenkins. Uh, again, Pat has been my mentor from day one. And I said, Pat, uh, 
this guy named Evan Stavisky called me and said he was interested in having a conversation about me coming on board. And Pat kind of walked me through the industry and he said, do your research, make sure you feel comfortable. Uh, but our portfolio, we work with dynamic companies and nonprofits that, again, are doing God's work and makes you feel comfortable to advocate for on their behalf. We work with individuals or nonprofits like CAMBA, which is one of the biggest social service uh, nonprofit organizations in New York City. We work with AT&T, uh, one of the largest companies that are employing union members. We work with great unions like 32BJ, UFCW, Local 1500. So when you have a portfolio of clients that are, like I said, trying to make lives better for individuals who don't necessarily have a path, it makes your work that more fulfilling and you feel justified in your mission. So one of the things that stands out to me about your story, which we are like huge advocates of the show is building relationships mm -hmm. and identifying those mentors and yep. trying to, to forge that because I think sometimes, especially for people who are overachievers and I think it's a cultural thing for us sometimes, we keep our, our stuff close to the vest. Yeah. Opportunities, dreams. We don't want to verbalize it for fear of judgment. Somebody's stealing your idea. I don't know what it is, but um, often we make these decisions in silos without mm. calling someone and saying, what do you think of this? Because I have yeah. no idea what this is. And yeah. I'm comfortable over here and I got this good, you know, gig yeah. going already. So that that jumps out to me that not only your mentor put you into the space, but it's someone who helped to shepherd you yep. through various iterations of your career Absolutely, and your journey yes. as well, which just speaks to how important it is to have those sounding boards. Yes. People who are more advanced than you, more well-connected or what have you, that can ex ex and say to you, here's what this is and this is what you need to do. Yep. And I think sometimes we have to get over this fear of like looking like we don't know something, yeah. you know, and just saying, I, I got this call. I have no idea what yeah. this is, but can you help me figure yeah. it out? And what do you think? I think that that's really crucial. And we have to be willing to use your word to humble ourselves at times and, and get the information. Humility, I think, is a lost personality trait mm -hmm. <laughs> where everybody feel they are superstar or influencer. I'm too big. I know it all. And... You know, I'm a firm believer, you don't know it all. Mm -hmm. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to lean on your support base or support system to where help you figure it out. So how did you get through, get from having a call, you know, someone calling you and saying, we mm -hmm. want to recruit you, um, someone wanting to recruit you and then you delivering through that recruitment process and actually mm -hmm. getting hired, two different things. Yep. So how did you get from that point and not really knowing what lobbying is to them saying, here's your offer letter? Yeah, um, it's a culture. Mm -hmm. So again, because I've worked for the state assembly, I worked for the New York State Senate. I worked for the New York City Council. I worked for the Office of the Attorney General. That experience, that diverse experience, were all attractive qualities to my firm. Mm -hmm. And those relationships that I brought to the table to help service our clients were valuable to the firm where it was a no-brainer for them to bring on Paul Thomas. Mm -hmm. So, and one of the other things about your story, which I think is worth mentioning, is that you're what I call like a master connector by way of another interest of yours. So one of the ways that you've built out your network, which I find incredibly fascinating, which people may not expect, yeah. is your your involvement in fitness. Yeah. Can you talk about that? So 2004, uh, even though I was working uh, for Kevin and the assembly at the time on loan to Carl, I wasn't making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So like most New Yorkers uh, during that time, 
Uh, they needed a second job. Mm -hmm. And because I played college football at Stony Brook University and I always had an interest in fitness, I became a fitness instructor at New York Sports Club, where I used that platform uh, to speak wellness and to build communities. At that time, you had, I was living in Harlem, and you had a lot of folks who were moving from Atlanta into Harlem, a lot of folks who were moving from Ohio uh, into Harlem, a lot of folks who was moving from Cali um, into Harlem, and I was able to create a community where people met folks from like-minded paths. Mm -hmm. And from building that community through wellness and teaching a class to having social events, to having sport intramural events, like we would play flag football, softball, and I may say some very competitive games. <laughs> um, it built the network, it built friendships, and I was able to leverage those relationships to help people, get people jobs, uh, get people opportunities to network with different professions. So what does that look like? Because I think sometimes people are afraid of coming off as like an opportunist mm -hmm. when they're in those settings and they see an opportunity to connect to people or ask for a favor. So what does that look like for you where you're making those asks and being successful in it and people don't think you have an agenda or anything? How do you how do you position yourself in those instances? It's called being genuine. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called... And vouching for us. Remember the movie uh, Goodfellas? Mm -hmm. You know, a friend of mine. No, that wasn't good. Donnie Brasco. Mm -hmm. There we go. Donnie Brasco. He's a friend of mine. So when people respect you, respect your work, and you say, Paul Thomas is a good kid. Give him an opportunity. They are going to give that person an opportunity based on your word because they respect you and they respect the relationship that you have with them. So because... I work hard. I am humble. I have been able to build relationships out of genuine relationships where you're not coming off like, you know, some of the people, what they think a, a lobbyist is or somebody who always coming with an angle. I just want to help people. Mm -hmm. So I don't want nothing from it. And if you have an opportunity to help somebody, do so. So because of that approach, folks that I engage with in the network that I engage with never felt that we were trying to get one over. Mm -hmm. It was just all about giving somebody an opportunity. In those environments of like, granted, you made it work to, to the, the advantage of the people that you care about in mm -hmm. terms of like, it didn't just become an intramural sports league or yeah. a fitness class. It became a place for people to, to come and network. But starting out, one of the things I think that draws people to certain careers in politics or corporate is the prestige with, that comes with that. Right? Mm -hmm. Like I work for this politician, I'm with this candidate. Did you ever have a moment where you're like, okay, I do that by day, but I'm teaching fitness classes. Like, what are people going to think of me? Did you ever have that that thought? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. uh, because it worked to my advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, people found it to be cool that I taught fitness classes and they were like, oh, can I come to your fitness class? I need to get in shape. I got a wedding. I'm going on vacation. Can um, I come to your class? So, no. Um, I think where people understand how important it is to stay healthy, to stay active, to embrace wellness uh, is not looked upon as like I'm Billy Blanks. <laughs> I'm out here pushing tight, I'm Billy Blanks and I, you know, I got a video out here, but I take my fitness career or aspect of my career seriously because the common theme, whether I'm helping a client, helping somebody get a job or advance their career, I'm helping somebody train for a marathon or um, try to lose weight is you're helping people and you're bringing people together. And with everything that's going on in body imaging and everything that's going on with some of the ills that continue to have our 
uh, community at a stranglehold, hypertension, diabetes. If I could teach a fitness class where it makes everybody comfortable, a warm environment where you can have fun and work out at the same time, I like to call that God's work. And how do you balance both? When you love what you do, it's not hard to balance. Uh, do I have long days? Like today, I taught four fitness classes. Before Which is just crazy. It, it'd be, that's why I'm in a sweater <laughs> um, before I trek it to Brooklyn. But I love what I do. I love helping people. And, I, you know, I sound like a broken record, but that's my passion. That's my calling. You know, when you ask me, like, when in life did you get this epiphany? Like, what you want to do, this clarity? Very early on, I always know that I'm good with people. Mm -hmm. I, I connect people. So to me, it's not hard waking up four o'clock in the morning, teaching a 530 fitness class. It's not hard going to Albany to advocate for my clients because they're doing great work in communities that are uh, underserved. Mm -hmm. So it's not hard work. You know, hard work is working in a coal mine. You know, hard work is being a teacher and you got 22 students and you still coming out of your pocket to get school supplies. Hard work is being a law enforcement officer and doing a dangerous job. Hard work is, you know, being a single parent mother or father and you work from eight to six and then you got to check homework and make sure that your kids are doing the right thing. That's hard work. I don't have a family yet, but so what I do day to day is not hard work. It's, it's fun. I'm helping people and I'm enjoying life and then bringing people together. So one of the things that has come up as a recurring theme on this show is people who've grown up in tough environments, yep. but made it out and mm -hmm. are seemingly well adjusted. And um, one of the things that we're, we're firm believers of is that with the right guidance and the right opportunity, anybody can be socialized to do positive things. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned your cousin, but what else do you attribute your ability to come out of that environment and do all these amazing, amazing things and be a person that wants to help and connect people and fight for causes? What do you attribute that to? It takes a village. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm just run off of dozen or so names that were influential in shaping Paul Thomas to be the man who he is today. Sandra Mead, my mom. Mm -hmm. uh, again, single parent mother, raised two kids, worked overtime. Uh, we didn't have a silver spoon, but she sacrificed to make us as worldly as possible. So it starts with my mom just having a strong support base when a loving home, when you came home, you got a hug. When you act up, you got a belt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all about disciplining your kids. Um, when she loved us, mm -hmm. she loved us to where she sacrificed. So it started with my mom. Hi, mom. Uh, we love shouting out the moms. Exactly, exactly. Uh, folks like uh, Lily Johnson, um, who worked in the community center and was everybody's grandmother. And when my mom had to work overtime and where all the kids left at five o'clock when their parents picked them up and my mom was working overtime to maybe nine o'clock, Ms. Johnson made sure that I was okay. Um, it was folks like Mr. Barnes, uh, my sixth grade junior high school teacher. It was folks like uh, Mr. Hemans, my science teacher in junior high school, all black men. Mr. Yawn, my first football coach uh, in Paul Robeson uh, junior high school, uh, ISO in 83. So having at that age, that formative age of positive role models in your life, Tyron Pope, mm -hmm. again, my cousin, and 
my life, a gentleman by the name of Joe Stewart, who, when I turned 17, 18, kind of took me under his, his wing and like, okay, when we hang out, this is how you move in life. This is how you move as a black man. This is how you move as a young black man. Those individuals all played a role in shaping my beliefs and learning from their mistakes. Mm -hmm. I like to say that people could be a living Bible. You know, not every story is positive. Not everybody is perfect. We all make mistakes. Um, but it's important to learn from your mistakes. So I was able to sit, sit back as a young man and see adults in my life go through ups, go through downs, but learn from those situations. So when I encountered those situations as an adult, I seen an example and learned from their mistakes. So I'm not going to make the same mistake. And why I, I appreciate you sharing all of those people within your village is because I think oftentimes in the media, there's this view of people who grow up in public housing. Uh, they're villainized often that they don't value themselves. They don't value their communities. They don't value their property. There's all these negative images uh, when the reality of it is it's just a lot of hardworking people just trying to make it Absolutely. in those in those buildings. Every community has the element, right? Yeah. But but there are many people who are just trying to raise their families yeah. and people who are coming together to try to give kids and the people that they care about Absolutely. a fighting chance. Absolutely. And I just feel like those images and those stories are not portrayed as often as they should be. You know, <laughs> it doesn't sell newspapers. Right. It's, you know, it's, we, we know the folks who, you know, grew up in the project, sold crack and became famous for something. But there are a lot of people who've come out of those environments. Who didn't sell crack. Exactly. Like, and are doing well in right, life. Right, who, who were doing well in life and didn't necessarily reach celebrity through the arts or music, mm -hmm. but are, have built a great life, life for themselves. And I think those stories need to be told more. I think we need to tell our own story. Mm -hmm. I think the time of depending on the entertainment establishment, the powers that be to tell our story, we got to stop that because nobody could tell your story better than yourself. So when you have this platform and when you have different platforms where we could tell our stories through our eyes, through our understanding, it's more powerful than going to a studio, going to a record label, going to some outside influence who may have an agenda not to show you in a positive light or to show you in one light and kind of pigeonhole you to that narrative. Mm -hmm. For sure. So shifting gears a little bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Ah, oh, man. Uh, now you're going to let me get preachy. Of course. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, I like to call this my Jesus in the wilderness moment. Mm -hmm. uh, I was nine years old. It was a summer day uh, in the Bronx on 153rd Street between Morris Avenue and Cortland Avenue. And for those who love hip-hop, Cortland Avenue in the late 80s and the early 90s was a notorious drug corridor in the city. I was riding my BMX bike. It was black and gold. And again, if you're from the city and if you're from the hood back in the day, you used to have your bike and you take a 25-cent quarter water. You drink a quarter water and you put it in the back tire and it would make that motorcycle sound. <laughs> so it was in the summer. I got my BMX bike, drank my quarter water, put it in the back of the tire, got my little motorcycle sound going, going up the hill. Uh, one of the teenagers in uh, my projects came up to me. I'm not going to say his name. Came up to me and said, yo, Paul, I need you to do me a favor. Went in his pocket, opened his hand, and it was a Ziploc bag 
filled with crack. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm going to the store. Can you hold this for me? You're nine. Nine years old. Nine years old. I looked at him and I said, I can't do that. He said, why not? I said, my mom was going to kick my ass. <laughs> Smart, smart young boy. And at that point, he's like, all right, cool. No problem. Let me ride on. For me, when you talk about Jesus in the wilderness moment, you know how Jesus was in the wilderness for a couple of days and the devil came up to him and said, well, if you God's son, jump off the ledge and that whole biblical story. For me, that was my point in the wilderness because if I would have held on to his Ziploc bag of crack, it would have led to, yo, Paul, hang out with us in front of the building. Yo, Paul, drink this 40. Yo, Paul, smoke this blunt. Yo, Paul, you want to make a little extra money? Be a lookout on 140, 153rd Street on Cortland. You want to make a little bit more money? How about yourself for me? You want to initiate you and the crew? You got to take a body. It's all a spiral. And for me to make that decision on that day will be with me forever because if I would have went left, I won't be having this conversation with you today. Right. Or very unlike that, I'd be having this conversation with you today. So that was my moment where... I was presented with a choice. You want to be something bigger than your environment or you want to be a part of the negativity that's going on in your environment? And because I was raised by a good village, I was raised by a loving mother who sacrificed, I was able to make the right decision that saved my life. Did you at nine, because of what had been instilled in you, really understand the gravity of this spiral that could happen? Not at that time. So it was more, when you said it's really about my mom, you <laughs> meant that it was a fear of what could happen. Listen, my mom is uh, from Panama. <laughs> <laughs> And my mom is a Leo. Oh, she's uh, not playing. She's not My playing. mother is very aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> I have an older sister who I witnessed uh, encounter some good beatings. <laughs> uh, what's that? The criminal statue is passed. So statue limitations. limitations is all good. Uh, but no, uh, yeah, my mom wasn't playing that. You know, my, I had the type of mother that allowed me to play out only in front of the building. Mm-hmm. And by 7 o'clock, it got dark. Upstairs. What you know, in those environments, sometimes I'm even surprised that you were allowed to play at all outside, you know? You know, you got to let your kids be kids. Mm -hmm. You got to let your... And she did a good job of that. But in that environment, I was fortunate enough that she had a leash. Mm -hmm. She had a tight leash. And whereas she didn't let me venture off that far. Another story, uh, when I was 16, playing football in high school, getting good grades. It's the summer. I want to hang out. Okay, come upstairs by 12. Oh, can I hang out to uh, 12.30? Er, I want to hang out to one. And she put her foot down. She said, no. I'm like, why not? I'm not doing anything, mom. I'm a good student. I'm playing football. She said, Paul, you're 15, you're 16 years old. You have no business being outside to 1 a.m. in the morning. What are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing nothing. I'm just talking to my friends. Like, bad things happen after 12 a.m. How many times we have heard over the years... Teenager gets shot at a party, 2 Mm a.m. Tyler gets shot at a block party, 12 a.m. Again, I was fortunate to have a parent that understood the ills, the potential ills of being out in the streets. Mm -hmm. And she was adamant that she would not lose her son to the streets. And considering where you you grew up, I'm sure... You have lost people that you know personally yes. to gun violence, yep. to the penitentiary, yep. etc. Do you ever have survivor's guilt? No, no, because I was fortunate to make the right choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the kids that I grew up with made tough choices that 
they paid for. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, a good friend said, it's always easy to make the right choice when you're fed. When your ribs are rubbing against each other, it's a little harder to make the right choice. So I don't have survivor's guilt. It makes me that more committed in my career to help those who believe they don't have any other path. Mm -hmm. To try to provide resources to individuals who can't see any other way. So survivor's guilt, no. But that much more committed to making sure the resources that other communities have and have access to are accessible to my community that I grew up in and to other communities that are similar to my community. Mm -hmm. And despite having such a strong village, did you ever have that moment growing up in a single parent home where you thought, where's my dad? Like, why doesn't... Why is he not here? Did you ever question that? Yeah, I did. So, like, I had a relationship with my father. Uh, he had a sailing charter company in the British Virgin Islands. Uh, we had an off-and-on relationship. Um, as a teenager, I struggled with that a little bit, to be honest. But because I was blessed to have so many male role models, mm -hmm. from teachers in junior high school to my cousin. I had somebody to play catch with. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I had somebody to kind of show me how you're supposed to move um, as a man. So it, it would have been great to have my father in the house, mm -hmm. uh, but everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason, and I wouldn't shape my childhood any differently. You know, if I went back in the time machine, I would have had maybe different investments. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> but again, the experiences that I went through, I think makes me appreciate everything that I have today. And I wouldn't give up those experiences or change those experiences for nothing. So going back to your current career, mm -hmm. when people hear the word lobby, mm -hmm. and they think deep pocketed, mm -hmm. big business, mm -hmm. guns, you know, those types of things. I don't people who really don't have a deep understanding of politics don't really understand that there's this whole other side of lobbying yep. um, for the people who the least of, of these, you know, mm -hmm. as the Bible says to to go in the yeah. biblical direction. Amen. Um, so what does your day look like? You mentioned going to Albany, but what are the other things that are a part of your job that really go into this or speak to this helping the little people who need it the most? So it's two parts. So as a lobbyist, simply put, you're given access to government for your clients. Mm -hmm. You are navigating them through the gauntlet, the red tape of government. So for example, I give you the example of Canva, mm -hmm. a social service nonprofit. New York City, New York City Council, uh, the mayor's office have resources that they give to nonprofits, discretionary resources. It's my job as Canva's city lobbyist to help them navigate that process for them to secure funding. Give me an example. Uh, the city funds Cure Violence. Cure Violence is a program funded by the mayor, mm -hmm. funded by the city council that combats gun violence in certain neighborhoods. I navigate that process with Canva so they could access those resources so they could bring that back into the community to combat gun violence. Got it. So that's like a day-to-day -day if it's policy. Mm -hmm. If it's, um, for example, my firm, um, we represent the leagues, MLB, PGA, the NBA, on trying to legalize sports betting, mm -hmm. online sports betting. So it's changing policy to give people an opportunity to bet online. So 
again, it's simply put, navigating government for our clients, how you get from point A to point B and achieve what you deem as successful outcome. So knowing what we know, uh, and I think um, in later years, in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. uh, civilians are, are who may not have been as interested in politics before are on high alert now. Oh yeah, right? because of the, mm-hmm. the political, the current yeah. political climate. Now you working in the thick of it and na- navigating that red tape, you know, albeit maybe on a city or state level. Do you ever have a moment of doubt where you're like, is it really worth it? All this effort that I'm, I'm pulling in, putting in to help institute change. Yes and no. Mm-hmm. Because when a Canva, a New York Cares, uh, a Prescolis, a nonprofit that does tech job training, when you are able to secure resources for these nonprofits, you helping somebody who is underserved. Mm-hmm. When you advocate for good public policy, you help shaping the course for people to have a better life. As you stated, in this time of political strife because of who's in our executive branch, who's running and currently running our executive branch. As a society, we are truly at a crossroads. Mm -hmm. We are at a crossroads of what we allow to influence us, and that's both on the left and the right. Um, Both sides are mucking it up, Mm -hmm. to be honest. The propaganda uh, that's going on, people are not seeing clear. And I touch on a controversial point where I've had a lot of disagreements with my friends and some of my colleagues. You look at the Colin Kaepernick situation, right? Colin Kaepernick started his protests out of, he was frustrated that African-Americans were being killed by some in the law enforcement community and we were not getting justice. And he started to protest, which is his right. He made his protests, he made his bones, others followed. As that story played out and when he became a free agent, the story went from his activism speaking to police brutality, police alleged police misconduct, how do we change criminal justice reform, to Kaepernick doesn't have a job. Right. And anytime you mention Kaepernick, it's now Kaepernick doesn't have a job. We hate the NFL. But we stopped talking about police brutality. <laughs> like, we stopped talking about criminal justice reform. And... If you look at the civil rights movement, a lot of people lost a lot more than their jobs right? during the civil rights movement. So when you talk about losing a message, that's how people get shifted because of just forces from all sides. Mm-hmm. Shift the debate. And we're really not talking about saving people. Right. <laughs> we're really not talking about bringing the law enforcement community together, bringing communities of brown and Black together with the law enforcement community. We focus on this gentleman doesn't have a job. Meanwhile, you have the Gardner case and that outcome. Meanwhile, you have individuals in Albany who's still um, dealing with alleged police misconduct and brutality. You still have cases in New York City where, even though you could argue there's been some improvements on police relations, but there's still a disconnect where you got cops are trying to do a job and they get hit with a bucket of water. So in that space, there's still a lot to be done, but we lose focus and talk about things that generate likes. Mm -hmm. We lose focus and talk about things that generate ratings, where we're not talking about real issues that could potentially save lives. So since you brought up Kaepernick, Mm -hmm. 
there's been renewed focus on mm -hmm. his lack of employment yep. given Jay-Z's most recent yep. deal with the NFL, which has been very polarizing on the internet. Yep. Do you think Jay-Z's choice uh, to, for lack of a better word, infiltrate that collective is a good strategic move? So let's talk about Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. Before Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, he said the next phase of the civil rights movement was economic justice, yeah. right? So at some point, you have to move the conversation to, again, like, God bless Kaepernick. It's not about him not having a job. Like, and one, in my opinion, my humble opinion, the NFL doesn't pass criminal justice reform. <laughs> so if you hold in the NFL to a standard of... The NFL writing Kaepernick getting a job or the NFL writing criminal justice reform, you're not focused on the the prize, in my opinion. So Jay-Z's collaboration with the NFL is an opportunity to have one of the most powerful leagues in this country, or if not the most powerful league in this country, partner with different entities of Jay-Z's company to help potentially shift conversations, to help put resources into areas of the country where it can make improvements on other projects in Kansas City and California and Texas and Florida and Atlanta and New York, where that collaboration could lead to an anti-gang initiative in Brooklyn. That collaboration could lead to a job creation program working with a community partner in Mount Vernon. Mm -hmm. So everybody wants to like say, oh, Jay-Z sold out. He moved the conversation to a conversation of economic justice and how we could leverage the partnership with the NFL to create opportunities and synergies to bring communities together and to bring resources into communities. Again, the conversation just can't be about an individual not having a job. Mm -hmm. It's a part of it. For some people who want to have that conversation, so be it. And it's something that we should deal with and we shouldn't forget. But the real meat of the conversation shouldn't be about cap. It should be about how do we continue to put resources in our community, how we continue to build up our community, how do we continue to reform the criminal justice system so that we won't have another Eric Gardner, mm -hmm. we won't have another Brown, we won't have another case of where Black men are being gunned down unarmed because there's a disconnect between law enforcement community and communities of color and men of color. That is... I, that's the best I've heard this articulated probably since this all came out in the last couple of weeks. I think a lot of the core message is getting lost in the noise. Um, it's a lot of noise. There's a lot, lot of noise, lot of noise. happening online. And, and whether you ag agree or not with your position, the way in which you have articulated it in terms of bringing it back to what this is really about, I think is something that shouldn't be lost on the, the public. So tell me, what's on the horizon for Paul Thomas? Uh, what's on the horizon for Paul Thomas? Again... I am a partner at the Parkside Group. Uh, as a career, you know, naturally, we uh, want our firm to continue to do well, which will allow me to get more opportunities, mm -hmm. which will allow me to have more of a voice into opening doors of people who look like me and look like you into the private sector of working with government. So that's on the immediate rising. Uh, socially, trying to enjoy the first game <laughs> of the Detroit Lions. We're going to keep we, our fingers crossed. We take on the, the Arizona Cardinals <laughs> and hopefully we get a win. <laughs> 
Awesome. Are you active online? Uh, yes. Um, only on one platform, mm-hmm. uh, Instagram. I thought you were going to say LinkedIn, actually. No. Uh, <laughs> so I used to have a, I have a Facebook account. Mm-hmm. I'm not hyperactive. I have an Instagram account. If you look on my Instagram profile, you look through my pictures. I think I'm a great cook, so I post pictures mm-hmm. of my cooking. Uh, from time to time, I will post a pic with family and family members. Uh, I will post a pic of my love for fitness. Mm-hmm. So I do CrossFit. Um, I got into cycling. So that's my social media footprint. <laughs> uh, I don't do Twitter. <laughs> I don't tweet. Uh, I'm not a fan of it, to be honest. Twitter is its own secret world. Like, people don't really quote it as, like, their go-to for social media, but I do appreciate Twitter commentary. Even though I'm not on there, when anything happens, the commentary on Twitter is just gold. Well, my frustration with Twitter, you will have grown people talking about Twitter beefs. <laughs> like, we're already in a society where you have a Twitter beef and you having this argument over a retweet or It's silly. It's silly. It's, you know, you got some folks in the entertainment community doing a video selfie and Mm -hmm. saying you got to, when you come to my town, you got to respect my town or you got people giving out their life story. (laughs) As the kids say, I'm not here for it. (laughs) Got it. So where can people learn more about your fitness classes? Uh, New York Sports Club. I teach, uh, what, six classes a week. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you go to free advertising for New York Sports Club. New York Sports Club or NYSC.com. You can look up classes um, and you'll see Paul Thomas. See, it's only because it's you because we're not down with the free advertising (laughs) around here. But because you you got to cut the check normally. (laughs) But because you are teaching there, we of course. I I appreciate that. You know, to not only come to your class to get in shape, but it sounds like to to widen their network as well. Listen, I try to make an environment where it's fun. Mm -hmm. You know, people have enough stressors in life, job, relationships, uh, everything. So when you, you come into my class for 55 minutes, it's a chance for you to laugh, work out, release some tension and have a good time. Awesome. You know, life is short. Well, I've enjoyed this. No, I enjoyed this. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm glad we got it in. Finally. Ask ask me back and we can talk about the topics. And shout out to Larry Blackman, a former guest of the show. Ah, Wait, uh, so Larry Blackman (laughs) is one of my best friends. He's an avid Jets fan. Mm -hmm. God bless Larry Blackman. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, friend of the show who uh, suggested that we bring you on. So shout out to you, Larry. Thank you. To our listeners, if you're trying to get in shape and you are are here in the New York City area, (laughs) check out Paul Thomas at New York Sports Club. Remember... If you enjoyed this episode, tell somebody about it. Without you sharing the word and spreading the jewels that we are trying to bring our guests on to impart, we we don't have a show. So thank you for all that you do. Make sure you publicize on our behalf. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thoval. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.